We're here on campus asking the people of Scottsdale Bible Church, who is your neighbor? You know, I don't know. That's a bad thing, isn't it? <laughs> but my wife knows their names, I don't. Everyone around me. Um, all of my friends and family. Um, George and Donna, they're across the street. Um, they help us out a lot. We get their mail, they get our mail when we're out of town. Um, they're really great. Uh, we love having them. Steve's next door too. Yeah. He's really funny. We help each other out with Christmas lights each year. and um, We love our neighbors. My neighbor is Sharon, and I just don't recall her last name, but I know it. My neighbor across the street, Linda. My neighbor next door, Daniel. My neighbor on the other side, Dave and Ava. My neighbor is Margaret. And Jim and Karen. I'd say lots of families in our cul-de-sac that yeah. have kids, same ages, that our kids play with. Yeah, and people at work mm -hmm. and family. I think it's uh, my co-workers and people that I might uh, be around a lot of the time and I can have influence with. Yeah, I think it's bigger than, when you first think of it, it's the people that live next door, but it's really everyone that you come in contact with. pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we, uh, we're here today because we all have some sort of spiritual interest in you. And Lord, some of us have walked with you for years on end now. Others of us are just beginning to, so others of us are still seeking. And so God, I pray that as we take a look at that all-important question that we just wrestled with on the video there of just who is our neighbor that, God, you might get us all on the same page. Help us to have unity in the answer to this question. And, uh, Lord, more than anything, might you lift our sights beyond even the here and now in our lives and in our church to what we can be as we follow you and what you want us to be. So we pray this now in Christ's name. Amen. So there was a famous research experiment done in 1973 on a group of seminary students at the famous Princeton Seminary. And after giving them a battery of psychological tests, the researchers told them that they were to go across campus, walk, and then deliver a sermon in the chapel on the topic of the Good Samaritan. And as part of this experiment, some of the students were told that they were late already and needed to hurry up. Unbeknownst to these students, the researchers had hired an actor to play the role of a victim suffering from some obvious illness lying on the ground and coughing. And they placed this actor right in the path of the seminary students rushing across campus to preach a message on the Good Samaritan. Do you see where we're going with this? And the results were staggering. Only 40% of the seminary students had all stopped to help this distressed person. The other 60% walked right on by. And even more staggering was that of the ones that they told that they needed to hurry to get to this sermon, nine out of ten of them walked right by this obviously hurting person, some of them even having to step over him on their way to deliver a sermon on the Good Samaritan. It was the perfect recreation of Jesus' parable, and the ministers at tra in training at Princeton did exactly what the original players in Jesus' story did, save for the Good Samaritan himself. 
So we're starting a new series here, uh, messages here at Scottsdale Bible today under the banner of grace and your neighbor. You see it behind me there on the screen, grace and your neighbor. And what we're going to be doing over the next few weeks here, our church is taking an honest and forthright look at what it means to live a grace-filled life, now don't miss this, out there, out there in your neighborhood, in the marketplace, wherever you find yourself when you're not here at church. It's grace when it matters most, when you're with your friends, when you're with your coworkers, when you're at the ball game, when you're traveling on a trip out of town, anywhere and everywhere that God might have you. And we're going to talk about how we show and demonstrate and apply grace in some key ways. We're going to talk about serving next week. We're going to talk about sharing our faith with other, others in a couple weeks. We're going to talk about what to do when people don't share our values in culture here, what we call the culture wars. And we're even going to talk about how we approach those in need, the poor and the oppressed. It's a series of messages on grace and your neighbor long overdue here at our church and a wonderful wrap-up to our year-long series on grace. And it's obviously my hope that you and I fare a lot better than a 1973 Princeton Seminary student who was unable to stop for those of a person in need. And so I want to begin this morning, this kind of an introductory message to the whole series, on talking about who precisely is our neighbor and how grace affects the whole situation. And as you guessed it, we're going to use Jesus' famous story, the story of the Good Samaritan, to guide and direct us. So I want us to read it together right now. If you brought a Bible with you, I want you, I want you to open up to Luke chapter 10, uh, beginning at verse 25. If you didn't bring a Bible, there should be one in the pew rack in front of you. And I'll even tell you what page number it's on. It's on page 869. So if you brought a Bible, great. If not, page 869 in your pew Bible. If you're still digging your heels in and refusing to grab a Bible, then look up here on the screen. Luke chapter 10, beginning at verse 25. I'll read, you guys follow along. It says, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him, Jesus, to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he, Jesus, said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down and came this ro that road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? The lawyer said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. So I think it's a great question that's put before us in this story, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? 
Obviously, the lawyer in this story asked it with really bad motives. He asked it, the text says, to test Jesus. Interestingly, that word test is the same word that was used in the desert when Jesus was being tempted by the evil one. And Jesus said, quoting the Old Testament, you should not put the Lord your God to the test. But this guy hadn't read that account yet or hadn't known of that account yet. So he was testing Jesus here, literally trying to trap him in some kind of logical bind. And so he asked Jesus initially what he must do to inherit eternal life. And Jesus asked a question back. He said, well, what does the law, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament say? That just might be a good starting place. And because this lawyer, who was an expert on the Old Testament law, knew the answer, he quotes a part of what is called the Shema found in Deuteronomy 6, verse 5, where it says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. And then he adds a piece from Leviticus 19, verse 18, where it says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, give that man a gold star. He's exactly right. This is what you need to do to inherit eternal life. Do this and you will live. We'll make sense of what all that means as we wrap up here in a little bit. And instead of wondering if one could really do all of this without a tremendous amount of divine grace and help, this man, who was still in a very arrogant and manipulative mood, comes back at Jesus with the question before us today, He says, well, then who is my neighbor? You see, folks, the Jewish people back then, the Jewish lawyers and the Jewish uh, priests and Levites bickered a lot about who really was this neighbor that you were to love talked about in the Old Testament. Like, did it mean other fellow Jews or did it include those from the outside? And if it did include those from the outside, was it your enemies or just those who were kind of pagan friends? And most of the experts in the Old Testament law back in Jesus' day pretty much argued that you only needed to see your neighbor as one who was like you. In this case, a fellow Jew. There were passages that certainly talked about the fact that if the foreigner was living in your land, they too needed to be treated as a neighbor, but they kind of dismissed these. And the prevailing argument was is that your neighbor was somebody who was like you. It was somebody who was of the same nation and race and all the other things that go along with that. That was your neighbor. And so this lawyer is pushing Jesus on this issue, wanting him to answer the dilemma and enter into the fray of who is our neighbor. And Jesus is willing to play ball with this guy. He's willing to answer his question. And he does so, as you and I know, with a story that is come to be known as the story of the Good Samaritan. And what you need to know is that in this story, Jesus forever puts to rest the issue of who is my neighbor. Three things I want you to notice in our time remaining. Three things that Jesus tells us about God's view of our neighbor that build one upon the other. And here's the first one. Look up here on the screen. And that is that neighbors are anyone in our sphere of influence. That last person on our video got it right. Your neighbor is anyone that God happens to bring in your sphere of influence. And so notice with me two ways that Jesus makes this clear, one kind of covert and one very overt. First, the covert way. As Jesus begins by telling the story, he starts by saying a man, you see that there, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Sounds innocent enough. And what most commentators point out, commentators in the Bible, is that this man was most likely a Jew. There's lots of Jews living between Jerusalem and Jericho at that time, and though there were lots of foreigners as well, most of the Bible experts, interestingly, surmise that this must have been a Jew, this man that Jesus was talking about. 
And the reason that they surmise that is because it adds more strength to the story. As we're going to see in a minute, a Samaritan who was not a Jew eventually helps this man who was beat up. So to assume that this man was a Jew just adds more strength and excitement to this story. And I used to teach that. I used to buy that. I taught taught in 2007 this story when I first came here, the story of the Good Samaritan. And I taught you all that this man was probably a Jew. And guess what? I don't think I was right. For those of you who think I never say I'm wrong, I think I might have been wrong. Because this week I was reading another Bible expert, a guy by the name of Joel Green, who teaches at Asbury Seminary, and Green points out that Jesus never says this guy was a Jew. And he could have easily said that. He could have said a Jew was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He never says that. And Green further argues that the reason that that is so is because Jesus wanted this man to be completely unidentified to covertly underline that all people are our neighbors, Jews, Gentiles, and foreigners, those not like us as well as those like us. So look at how Green says it about this anonymous man here. Look up here on the screen. He says he is simply a human being, a neighbor in need. So Jesus never identifies this man here, who he is, so that we might see all men in him. It's kind of Jesus' way of foreshadowing his main point that all people everywhere and anywhere that we might confront them are our neighbor. And as I ran into that idea this week, I thought, well, I know how Scottsdale Bible Church thinks. I know that some of them are going to buy it just because I say it, and then there's going to be some who buy it because they look into it and say, yeah, 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 I think that's right too. And then there's going to be others of you who say, that's not good enough. That's too covert. It's too debatable. I don't know if that's really what Jesus is saying here. And for you and for the rest of us, if this doesn't convince you, then I want you to simply notice the way that Jesus does make this same point absolutely clear. When in verses 36 and 37, when he's asked, When he asks who proved to be the real neighbor, remember he asked that, who proved to be the real neighbor? Was it the Jewish priest who walked on by? Was it the Jewish Levite who walked on by? Or was it the non-Jewish Samaritan? The lawyer rightly answers, the Samaritan who showed mercy. And that's Jesus' point. The Samaritan who didn't care about race, religion, sex, or socioeconomic status. The Samaritan who didn't mind being inconvenienced to help a fellow human being in need. The Samaritan who saw anyone and everyone in his sphere of influence as his neighbor. This is the guy who proved to be the real neighbor. And don't let this pass you by, folks. What Jesus is saying is that the Samaritan had the right mindset that this guy saw anybody in his sphere of influence as the one who was to be the neighbor to. And so I love that phrase, sphere of influence. If you can kind of picture an invisible circle around you that you carry with you everywhere that you go, what the Samaritan's mindset was is that anybody who even gets close or inside my circle is my neighbor. Anybody that God brings around me into my sphere of influence is the one that I'm to be a neighbor to. That's who I'm to see my neighbor as. And that's what I believe Jesus is making clear here. you got an unidentified man in need, neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, and you got a Samaritan who doesn't see others through the lens of ethnicity or creed or social construct. And so who is your neighbor? 
anyone in your sphere of influence. And the point for you and I is that obviously God wants us then to be aware of and attuned each moment of each day to anyone and everybody he places in our path. And as we're going to see, this idea of sphere of influence that all of us have, because all of us are connected with people in some way, as we're going to see, this is going to be the catchphrase throughout this whole series. As we talk about sharing our faith, as we talk about serving others, as we talk about sharing values with people, everything that we do out there, it's all going to have to do with our sphere of influence. And I want you to see those people, this is critical, as your neighbor. And as, you as I, and as you and I grab on to this revolutionary idea of who our neighbor is, i got to tell you, folks, we have the power to actually change the way Scottsdale is perceived. You know, one of the things that I realized when I came here four years ago, and it didn't take very long, is that for right or for wrong, people in Phoenix have a particular view of Scottsdale. Give me a head nod if you all understand what I mean. The other services almost didn't want to hear this today, but let's just be frank about it. Um, Scottsdale is seen by most people outside of Scottsdale as wealthy, somewhat snobby, a bit aloof, at times not caring, and most importantly, socioeconomically and racially homogenous and glad to be so. That's the reputation that our city has by those who see it from the outside. And we could argue all day long whether that's a correct reputation or not. I'm not here to touch that one today. I'm just saying that you and I both know that when you garner a reputation over town, whether earned or unearned, there are things you can do to change it. Amen? There's things that you can do to say, no, I'm not aloof. No, I'm not uncaring. No, I'm not uh, glad that we're racially and socioeconomically not diverse. I'm I'm not glad about that. I, I wish we were more caring, more involved, more engaged with more around us. I I wish that people didn't see my city as one where they just might step over somebody in need because they got to run on to their religious thing. And as you and I, as Scottsdale Bible Church, here's my point, live the story of the Good Samaritan as we start to see anybody and everybody in Phoenix, because that's our sphere of influence. Let's face it, folks, 3.7 million people. That's our sphere of influence. As we see everybody As our neighbor, I'm telling you, we have the power to change the perception that people have of Scottsdale. Our church alone, 10,000 people, and some of you don't live here in Scottsdale, but you come to church in Scottsdale. Our church alone, 10,000 people, represents 125th of the population of Scottsdale. So the reality is, 10,000 people here can make a huge dent in the way that people view our city. And so I was thinking, you know, when you come to Scottsdale, you've seen that sign that says the most uh, what's it called? Most livable city? That's the motto on the sign. I don't know if you guys know that. Of Scottsdale, most livable city? I thought we could actually maybe change it to the most loving city. We, we actually have the power to do that. that you and I do. Uh, first thing that Jesus teaches us here about our neighbor is that it's anyone and everyone in our sphere of influence. Now, he's just warming up, however. I want you to notice a second thing that Jesus makes clear here in answering this age-old question, who is my neighbor? And that is that neighbors are anyone who need grace. They are anyone who need grace. I mean, this is precisely how the good Samaritan saw things and how he functioned, and this is what made him a good neighbor. So, so back to our story and track this. This is really important for us today. As we know, this unidentified man who was traveling the road from Jerusalem to Jericho got mugged. 
And what you need to know is that he got really mugged. I mean, everybody in Jesus' day knew that this was a bad neighborhood to be traveling through. Give me a click here. They knew that the road from Jerusalem to Jericho descended 3,000 feet to the valley floor. They knew that it was 25, 21 miles long. And they knew that there were lots of caves and cliffs and twists and turns for robbers to hide out in. I mean, it was the ghetto. They knew this was a bad place. And this unsuspecting traveler obviously got mugged and he got the worst of it. It says that he was stripped, beaten, and left half dead. So plenty of people got mugged along this road back then, but this guy got mega mugged. He got what Philip Yancey calls a dose of the world's ungrace. And the text says that then two religious leaders, the priest and the Levite, came upon this man. And what's most fascinating, folks, is that the description that Jesus uses of both of these individuals is the same. Separate circumstances, but the same. It says that they saw him and passed by on the other side. Same language, you describe both circumstances. They saw this guy and they passed by on the other side. So these religious leaders, like the 1973 Princeton Seminary students, were probably on their way to do some religious thing and they could have cared less. But then a Samaritan Pause right there. Jesus says in Luke 10, 33, but then a Samaritan. And guys, I'm telling you, when he said those three words, but then a Samaritan, all the wind in that room or where they were was just sucked out of the place. You could just hear people say an audible gasp as Jesus is about to compare a Samaritan to a Levite and a priest in his day, and even worse, suggests that a Samaritan might be the one who was the actual neighbor over and against these well-respected religious leaders. You see, Samaritans in that culture were a class of people who had been despised by the Jews for centuries. Picture Hatfields and McCoys. They had intermarried with Jewish offspring. They had half joined the Jewish faith. They were spiritual mutts in most people's minds. They were illegal immigrants. They weren't wanted in the land. And as John sums up so well in his gospel in chapter 4, verse 9, and I quote, Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. And after this, priest and Levite both see and then pass by this man who's half dead. Look at the description that Jesus uses for the Samaritan, this half-breed who was not welcome in the land. It says that he likewise saw the man, but this is all he ever had in common with the priest and the Levite because from that point on, it says that he had compassion, went, bound, brought, and took care. Wow! a string of descriptions for what this guy did to prove himself a neighbor. He saw, had compassion, went, bound, brought, and took care. And when you read the details of those two verses, it's staggering. He bound up his wounds. He applied immediate first aid using the precious travel commodities he had of oil and wine. He, took, he placed a man on his animal and brought him to an inn. Most people that, that back then didn't even stay in an inn because it was too expensive, but this guy spared no expense. And then he took two denarii, which was more than enough money back then, and gave them to the innkeeper and said, hey, when I come back, if there's more of a bill, I'll cover it. 
All this detail to simply show that a neighbor goes the distance for someone in need and anyone in need is your neighbor. Uh, folks, please don't miss what Jesus is getting at here using characters from his day that would surely provide shock value to his audience, if not offend them. Samaritans and Jews, he makes very clear that a neighbor is someone who sees an obvious need in the life of anybody around them and then sacrifices time, talents, and treasures to meet that need. Neighbors are anyone who need grace, and quite frankly, a neighbor is anybody who gives grace. And the point is, and you and I both know this, is that we all need grace at times in our lives, and so all of us are called to be neighbors to each of us all the time in our lives. That's the point. And I think it goes out saying that though this context here is about physical needs in the life of an individual, that's the context of the Good Samaritan, the Bible goes on to talk about the fact that we all have emotional needs and relational needs and spiritual needs as well. And so whenever and wherever needs arise around us, the Bible says we're to be neighbors applying the balm of grace and when we do this, spiritual and relational sparks fly as God is honored and people are ministered to. Uh, Terry Muck tells a great story in, his, uh, in the magazine Men of Integrity that I think was put out by Promise Keepers a couple of years ago. And he tells the story that starts off like a normal everyday story that you and I would both dial into. He tells a story of there were these two men and they were neighbors. And it's a true story. They were neighbors. And, and one was a believer and one was not a believer. And yet, like many scenarios like that, they still, you know, related casually over the fence and they borrowed each other's lawnmowers and things like that. They were good neighbors. But then this non-believer's wife was stricken with cancer and she died three months later. And after the event, he wrote a letter to all of his friends. And I'm going to read you a portion of the letter that he wrote. He says, I was in total despair. I went through the funeral preparations and the service like I was in a trance. After the service, I went to the path along the river and walked all night. But I didn't walk alone. My neighbor, afraid for me, I guess, stayed with me all night. He didn't speak. He didn't even walk beside me. He just followed me. When the sun finally came up over the river, he came over and said, let's go get some breakfast. The man says, I go to church now, my neighbor's church. A religion that can produce the kind of caring and love my neighbor showed me is something I want to find out more about. I want to love and to be loved like that for the rest of my life. I say, wow. And you know what the problem is with the story of Good Samaritan is that most people see it as a quaint little moral values story that we read to our kids before bed. The reality is Jesus didn't mean the story to be like that at all. Jesus meant the story of the Good Samaritan to grab you and I right by the throat and to bring home to us that when we embrace grace and dare to take it into uncharted territory, out into culture, we have the power, God has a power through us to change things. I mean, we all know around here that God changes lives, but do you know that he wants to use you in the process and the most cool thing about the story of the Good Samaritan, as well as the story that I just read from you from Men of Integrity, is that you don't have to be Joe Evangelist, though I'm going to share with you in a few weeks how you can share your faith better. You don't have to have all the answers, though we try to provide answers around here. No, 
What it really takes for you to be a dispenser of grace is the ability to stay up all night, follow your neighbor along a path by a river, and then invite him to breakfast. That's what God uses to change the composition of human hearts. All you have to do is take some of the grace that God has already put in you as a follower of Jesus and then have a willing heart to see the needs around you and a readiness to act. Because you see, folks, when you get to this place, when you're ready for, when you get to this place where you finally get this and you're ready to say, okay, I want to do what God wants me to do, then you're ready for Jesus' third point and really the whole point of this story. And that is that neighbors then are a key pathway to how you and me follow God. It's really true. It's so incredibly cool. Neighbors actually become a key pathway to how you and I follow God. And you're saying, what do you mean by that? In my study this week, one of the things that I noticed that kind of blew me away is that three times in the story here, the word do, D-O, appears. It appears first in Luke 10, 25, when the guy says, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And, and then Jesus turns the question back on him, and he says, love God and love your neighbor. And Jesus says, you're correct. And that's where it appears again then in verse 28, where it says, Jesus says, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. And then in verse 37, at the end of the parable, it says, you go, Jesus says, you go and do likewise. Do like the good Samaritan. So dial into that. You've got three times it uses the word do. One in the beginning, one in the middle, one in the end. And, and the question is, could, could God be saying something to you and I in that? You know, most commentators argue about that, that middle do. What does that mean? You know, where Jesus says, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. I said we get to that earlier. And there's a couple of options there. Some theologians take that to mean that, that, that Jesus is telling him to do something that no human being could possibly do, like love God perfectly with everything in you, and then love your neighbor always consistently as yourself. And by telling the guy to do this, and if you do this, you will live. If you live the law perfectly, he'll realize eventually he can't do it, and then he'll seek grace in the form of faith in Jesus and have salvation, which is what the epistles teach. But I'm not sure that's what Jesus is saying here. The other option is what Jesus is saying here to this guy is that if you become a follower of me, if you learn to love God with everything in you and you learn to love your neighbors yourself, if, if you become a follower of me, as you become a follower of me, outpouring from that is going to be more love for God, more love for your neighbor. And as you do this, it's going to confirm that you are my follower and you're going to live Live here and live eternally. In other words, what Jesus could be suggesting here, folks, is to the degree and kind that you and I love our neighbor, anybody in our sphere of influence, is to the degree and kind of Christ follower we really are. Or put more simply, Jesus is saying it's through loving those around us that we show that we follow him. And even it's through loving those around us that we experience him as we follow him. And so once we get this, I love how J.C. Ryle, the great Anglican pastor and bishop of Liverpool back in the 1800s in England, says it in his writings. This could almost be written today because he's writing about the parable of the Good Samaritan. He says, how few Christians seem to remember that such a parable was ever written. What are we doing, each in our own situation, to prove that this mighty parable is one of the rules of our daily life? And that really is the key question, isn't it? What are each of us going to do with this parable? If it's true that God wants us to experience him 
through loving our neighbor. If it's true that loving our neighbor is actually an outpouring of our faith and trust in Jesus, then the stakes are too high here. What are we going to do with the information that we have today? You guys don't know this about me, but I, I really wrestle with this stuff. I do. The side you guys see of me is very compassionate and, 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 and very involved with people and all that, but I'm an introvert at times more than I want to be, and I get tired, and I get grouchy, and I get selfish, and there's times where I just don't want to be a good neighbor. I had an experience when I was uh, on my break that I want to tell you about it was an experience I told the men about at a retreat a couple weeks ago. It was an experience with my wife, Kim, who's here today, that has become a neon sign of challenge to me. I've always said my wife, Kim, is my greatest teacher, and once again, as we got away for a few weeks this past summer, she proved to be so. It all began when we were traveling across country going to deliver a car to my little brother in Michigan. We got this harebrained idea that we'd drive the car out rather than shipping it out because wouldn't it be wonderful to spend five days together in the car? We're rethinking that one from this point on. <laughs> but we eventually made it out to Michigan after not killing each other in this small little Mustang, this 10-year-old Mustang that we drove out there. And, and we actually did have some fun along the way. One of the things we did to be fun, and this shows you how wild we are, is that we decided we were going to eat it many, as many Cracker Barrels as we could. Do you guys know what Cracker Barrel is? Seriously, we Googled it, and we decided we ate a Cracker Barrel in Flagstaff, and then New Mexico, and then St. Louis, and then Illinois, and then in Michigan. We were like racking up Cracker Barrels. And, and, and I love Cracker Barrel. I'm a redneck at heart, so chicken fried steak, french fries, that's my thing. So we're eating a Cracker Barrels, and eventually we get all the way back to, um, to, to almost home, and we're in Flagstaff. And it came to uh, the evening, and, and I said to Kim, where do you want to go for dinner? And she said, well, you've been awfully consistent. Let's go to Cracker Barrel. So we started off to Cracker Barrel. We were staying at my daughter's apartment up there. And if you know the NAU campus, Cracker Barrel, for some of you do know this, shame on you, Cracker Barrel is about three miles away from NAU. So we're driving to Cracker Barrel that night, and, and, and this just tells you a lot about my wife. We got up to the light, and there was one of those homeless guys there who was asking for food, signed saying, I want some food. And Kim looked at me and said, we should take him to dinner. After 23 years, I'm honest with my wife, okay? So I look at Kim, and she could tell before I even opened my mouth, I didn't want to take this guy to dinner. I was tired. I just drove across the country. And so all I did, and you guys are like this in your marriage, I just looked at Kim, this look of, I don't want to take this guy to dinner. Before I could even answer, I kid you not, these two guys in the car behind us, two college students, jumped out, and they gave this guy each a can of Pringles, they, they had two cans of Pringles, and they gave him a can of Pringles. My heart was so hard, I looked at Kim, and I said, he's got dinner, and I drove off. <laughs> I did. So we get to Cracker Barrel. Our, our night is soured by now because she's not happy with me. And uh, so we get to Cracker Barrel, and I order my dinner, and she orders her, and we're eating in silence. And at one point, I noticed that the EMT had walked in to Cracker Barrel. And uh, we were sitting right by the entrance, and the EMT walks in, and there was this elderly lady, and she was sitting there kind of distressed, and the waitress was sitting with her, and I thought, she doesn't look sick, but she's old, she might be sick. And so the EMT is, is talking with her, and I just went back to eating. About two or three minutes later, I noticed that there were four EMTs there, and I couldn't see because Kim was blocking the way, but one of them was going like this on the ground. And I realized that it wasn't this lady who was in distress, it was her husband, 
and he was in big time distress. So I said to Kim, I said, there's a commotion behind you. There's a guy who, who's probably having a heart attack or something behind you, and there's four EMTs. Kim turns around, and she looks at me, and she says, we need to go over and offer to pray. I said, Kim, it's a public restaurant. I said, you know, and, and, and I just said, a public restaurant, go over and pray. I said, what if they don't want to? What if they see that as pushing it on them? I just said, we can pray right here. She goes, I'm going. And she stands up in the middle of Cracker Barrel, and she walks over, and I'm back. You guys got a picture. I'm back there eating my chicken fried chicken. My wife <laughs> is over there, and right away the waitress says, that would be a great idea. And the three of them, Alice, who this lady, and the waitress and Kim start praying. This waitress must go to a charismatic church because right there in Cracker Barrel, she's going like this as they're praying. And so there's Kim, Alice, and this waitress praying. And eventually Kim comes back over to me and says, uh, you know, he's in bad shape. I don't know what's happening, but we prayed. And I told him if they need anything that we're over here. And so a couple minutes later, the waitress comes on over and, and says, uh, you know what? I need to go back on my shift, but Alice really needs somebody to sit with her. Would you guys come over and sit with her? It doesn't take too much to get to me. By then, I'm like, well, Kim, we should act. And so I stood up and <laughs> say, she needs us. She needs us. So we walk on over. And I got to tell you, the second I got over there, I knew the guy was, was dead. He was dead right there. I mean, it was just awful. I mean, he was wide-eyed, staring into space. He, he had drool coming out of his mouth. I mean, and the EMT looked at me right when I walked up, and he shook his head. And God bless these guys. They were so gentle with Alice. They, they said, you know what, we, we, we want to continue to provide some life-saving measures here, and so we'd like to, to get them to the hospital in Flagstaff right away. And, uh, and, and Kim, my wife, just took charge. She said, well, Alice can't drive. Alice, do you have a car here? And Alice said, yes. She said, well, I'm going to drive with you, Alice. I'm going to drive your car. And Jamie, you drive behind us and meet us at the hospital. So we got in Alice's car, Kim and Alice did, and they drove, followed the ambulance there, and I followed them, and they weren't even having the lights on. I knew that, that there was no hope for this guy. So we got to the hospital, and we're in the emergency room there, and they put us in a private room, just the three of us, and a nurse sat with us. And then the doctor came in and, and said what we all knew. He said, Alice, your husband's gone. And uh, he died of a heart attack right away there in Cracker Barrel, and, and, uh, and he's gone. And uh, he didn't suffer, but... He's not with us. And then he said, uh, I know you probably would like to come back and see him one last time, and uh, you're welcome to do that. She looked at the doctor, and she said, I do want to go see him, and I want her, and she pointed at my wife, to go with me. I was like, not me? No, her. I want her to go with me. And then she looked at me and said, my son lives in Bullhead City. We have a trailer park. We're in the trailer park here. We're, we're trailering, and my son lives in Bullhead City. Would you call him? and let him know what happened. I said, obviously I would. So I called her son Carl, and they made their way out to Flagstaff to be with Alice. After a little while at the hospital, we drove Alice back to her trailer park, and by then she was ready to say goodbye. She, she really wanted some time alone. And uh, Kim gave her our contact information, prayed with her again, shared with her a little bit about the Lord, and uh, we drove back to my daughter's apartment. As so we were going to bed that night, I said to Kim, I said, Honey, you were amazing today. You were just amazing. I, I, I said, I, I learned something about me. I, I'm so good when I'm on. I'm so good when people make an appointment to see me in my office. I'm so good when I got to deliver a sermon. I'm so good if, if I'm prepared for what's coming. But you're so good the opposite way. 
I said, none of us saw that coming today, but you were just prepared each moment of each day to take whatever God brings our way and to respond. And then I said, right before we going to bed, I said, I think I could probably grow in my use of compassion, don't you think? And she said, yes, I do. <laughs> and she's right. Email my dad yesterday. I said I spoke on kindness three weeks ago, and I got to speak on the Good Samaritan tomorrow. It's killing me. And uh, it's true. That baby's got it right, doesn't he? <laughs> the reason I tell you guys that story is because there are some, if not many of you, especially some of you men who, who get it, don't you, Walt? You guys get it. You get what it's like to get so caught up in your job, to get so caught up in your own thing, to get so caught up in your life that you can turn it on when you want to, but when you don't want to, you're just not going to be there. And I guess what the story of the Good Samaritan teaches me in a profound and life-giving way is that God doesn't want me to have a choice when to turn it on or not turn it on. He wants me to be on any time he gives me the cue. He wants me to be on when he says to be on. Anytime he brings somebody in my sphere of influence, Anytime he gives me a chance to dispense just a little bit of grace, whether embarrassing or not, whether a little bit intrusive or not, but to dispense grace anyways, I'm to do it. And I believe that that's true for you too. And one of the things my wife teaches me on a regular basis is that grace is received so much more than we would ever imagine. Yeah, there's the odd person that wouldn't want you to pray for them in Cracker Barrel, but not too many. Most people want to receive the grace you and I have in profound ways if we're willing to release it. I love how 1 Peter 4.10 says it. It says that you and I are carriers of the manifold grace of God, and he desires to use that grace in other people's lives. It's true. And if there's nothing that the story of the Good Samaritan teaches us, it teaches us that anybody and everybody is our neighbor. We just got to take a few risks to pass it on. And I hope you'll join me in a renewed commitment to do so. Let's pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, um, one of the things that we know here at Scottsdale Bible Church, because your word makes it so clear, is that we are all human, we're all fallen. And so we don't need to ever apologize for that or be shy about that. It's true. And yet, Lord, one thing we also know, and this is what makes us the church, is that you came to redeem our fallenness, to forgive us and each step of the way, help us to become the first people that you want us to be. And Lord, this story that is known by so many is a profound wake-up call to some of us to get with the grace program and to not be shy to be the good Samaritan in the, with those in our sphere of influence. And Father, I really believe what I said earlier, and that is that for the bulk of us here, if we could get radical about this as a church, we just might have the capacity in your hands to make a dent in this city. And so, God, I pray that you might impress that upon our hearts and our minds to be the kind of people you want us to be. And, Lord, if I know you, you're going to bring some things our way, even today, this week, that are going to test our mettle. And I pray, God, that we would not walk over or around the needs you put before us, but be ones who will be right front and center there and use us in the process. And Lord, for what you do, we'll deflect all glory and all praise to you, realizing all good things come from you. And we pray these things in Jesus' holy and precious name. And the whole church says together, amen. amen. God bless you. We'll see you guys next week.